Welcome to the Nourished with PCOS podcast. I'm your host, Sam Abbott, registered dietitian nutritionist and PCOS nutrition expert. I'm here to help you learn how to manage PCOS and support your hormones while also having a healthy relationship with food in your body. You can improve PCOS symptoms and labs without dieting. Get ready to feel better with PCOS and leave diet culture in the rearview mirror. Welcome to another episode of the Nourish with PCOS podcast. I am your host, Sam, and I am really excited for you to hear today's episode. I had the pleasure of chatting with my colleague and fellow registered dietitian, Julie Duffy Dillon. Julie has a practice called Find Your Food Voice, and we chatted about all things PCOS, non-diet, weight inclusivity, and eating disorders. I would love your feedback on episode formats because I found I love kind of chatting about a couple of different topics rather than having an episode devoted just to one thing. Julie is a wealth of knowledge. I know Julie personally. She is here in North Carolina. I've done supervision under Julie when I first started my practice, which if you're not familiar with supervision, this is something super important for dietitians where you get training and guidance from a more experienced dietitian. Julie and I have also done advocacy work together. We are have been on the same North Carolina team on PCOS Advocacy Day, and we chat about that as well. Well, I hope that you enjoy today's episode. Hi, Julie. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Sam. It's great to see you. It's great to see you too. And I am so excited to chat with you about all things PCOS. Before we get into our podcast questions today, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and how you ended up specializing in PCOS? I would love to. So I have been a dietitian. I call myself a seasoned dietitian. <laughs> I've been one for. I, love that. <laughs> I was a. I became a dietitian in the late 1900s in 1999. <laughs> um, and I have been specializing in eating disorder recovery and PCOS for about 20 years. And I started working with PCOS because I was working with folks with eating disorders, and I didn't really intentionally like set out to work with PCOS. I didn't know anybody with it. I had worked with it a little bit when I worked in pediatric endocrinology, but I didn't really have any interest in helping people with like medical conditions. I really was into like food behavior, but Mm -hmm. so many people, as you know, so many people kept coming in with these eating disorders that were really hard to treat with PCOS. And I was like, well, let me look into how to help people with PCOS. And I also wanted them to recover, of course, Mm because everyone deserves recovery. And I also was against dieting. And um, I know, you know, the book, the big Krauss medical nutrition therapy. Uh, Anyone who's not a dietitian. You can see it in my background right right there. (laughs) It's the really thick book. Oh yeah. I can see it. It's like, I don't know what four inches thick and they have a little tiny section on PCOS. And I can remember like looking through it And all it said was treat it like diabetes and help people lose weight. And I'm like, well, this isn't going to work for me, right? (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. because diets don't work for anyone. So why would they work for this? And yeah, I just started trying to find different ways. And of course, this was way before like Instagram, you know, I didn't have a way to connect with other colleagues working with PCOS. We barely had a baby internet at the time. 
and connected with some folks who had some like different ways to treat, treat PCOS. And so I started helping these clients with eating disorders with PCOS. And then they started telling their friends and their doctors. And then lo and behold, like half my caseload had people with PCOS. And I'm like, oh, this is actually really interesting. And I want more people to know this. So just kind of just took off from there. And I, at that point, that's about when I was on my big fat, fabulous life, that reality show, which is like (laughs) weird to even say, but I was in my early forties and had two kids. And I'm like, and when a reality show calls, you know, it's never going to happen again. So then I was on TV talking about it. So then just, then I was like, okay, I'm definitely gonna be working with PCOS for a long time because now people know that I do that. So a fun experience, but also so great that more people like you are helping people without diets to help their PCOS because like, I know you know this, but like everyone with PCOS and every human being deserves to have a relationship with food that actually feels like nourishing and helps them feel at home in their body. And Mm -hmm. just because you have PCOS doesn't mean you have to like avoid carbs forever or focus on your weight. Yeah. Food is such a big part of life. And I feel Mm -hmm. like in the medical space, we only talk about food in a certain way and we completely discount all of the emotional, social, Mm -hmm. psychological components that go into eating. And I think that's a big piece of what leads to poor advice and disordered eating. 100%. Yeah. I like how you mentioned too, like, well, diets don't work for anyone. So they wouldn't work for somebody with PCOS because I feel like a lot of people listening may love the idea of taking a non-diet approach and then they, they feel like they can't because Mm -hmm. they have PCOS. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. nothing that we know about dieting and the failure rate of dieting and the negative implications of dieting, nothing changes just because you have PCOS. Like all of that is still true. Right. Yeah. And I totally can say too, when I first started working with people with PCOS, I was in that space too of like, Mm -hmm. but there's this PCOS thing, like, but we need to like treat it. This is serious. And that's, when I was really still new to my anti-diet work. So I didn't really have like a depth of knowledge and experience to really appreciate how much, like you said, like how emotional health is so important and a person's relationship with food and their body. But then when we really look at all of the research, noticing that diets with PCOS, like we don't actually have this evidence mm-hmm. that it is helpful. I'm still waiting for the newest guidelines. I don't know if they've come out yet. And I just missed it because I'm not on Instagram, but like the 2021 so, still, still said there was no diets that actually helped. I was actually very fortunate enough to be able to sit on a committee that reviewed yes. them and gave feedback. And that makes me so happy. <laughs> well, <laughs> we can only do so much though, because by, <laughs> by the time they sent out an aversion for everyone to give feedback on, I felt like they were pretty much set. Like, mm-hmm. unless you give something where we have a, where of what they would see as like an a medical error, then they were, they kind of said like, this is basically, these are them, but if let us know Mm -hmm. if you see anything type deal, that is still the case. I will Mm -hmm. say a couple of things that 
I, I want to do a whole podcast episode about this. And this oh is gosh, from the edited, this is from the edited version. So I don't know what will come out in the mm-hmm. final version. But one thing I was very happy about is they decided not to use the O word in the whole document. Wow. And made the statement that they felt like it was very stigmatizing and that we need to be more cognizant of body image struggles with PCOS and eating disorders and things like that. Now, of course, the whole document then just referred to BMI. It didn't use the O word, but (laughs) it was still, I feel like, a step in some sort of right direction. Wow. I wonder if they did any unpacking of why the O word is stigmatizing. Like that would help then how we'll come to the conclusion that pushing weight loss is the reason. (laughs) Yeah. And I will say when you look at the last guidelines compared to the new ones, I felt like the push towards weight loss was not nearly as that's great. That's great. Intense. It Mm -hmm. there was still that underlying tone, but in the feedback that I submitted, of course, and like every yeah. single section I like pointed out like do we have the research for this this is incredibly right. stigmatizing what about x y and z and even I, I don't know if any of that will get changed but from my perspective at least I know somebody read it or mm-hmm. that was mm-hmm. brought to someone's attention I am so glad that you had the like connection to do that didn't to like actually provide that feedback because yeah, it probably planted some seeds, even if it didn't end up changing the version and every part, but at least someone was reading it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And now there's a discussion. I don't know what's going to come of it, but for anybody listening, who's not familiar, these are the international Mm evidence-based guidelines for treating PCOS. There's a discussion of will some sort of organization in the U S like officially adopt them because Mm -hmm. right now a lot of direction is taken from like the American Society of Reproductive Medicine Mm -hmm. or other organizations and things like that. So I think that will be an interesting conversation. For sure. We'll have to like stay close to that too to make sure we are that squeaky wheel that yeah (laughs) mentioning the harm because especially as dietitians and hearing people's like day-to-day connection with food and their body and spending so much time going through all that, like we hear how harmful it is probably a lot faster than many other Mm -hmm. healthcare providers. So yeah, we need to be the, we need to make sure we let them know that. But yeah, like Mm -hmm. for the listener, that's the thing where we, they keep saying in these evidence-based guidelines, even though they're pushing weight loss, they still don't have a way for you with PCOS that's going to like help most people without harming you. Yeah. So until then, there are other options that we have. Yeah. (laughs) Which I'm excited to jump into that conversation as well. But before we do that, I am interested to hear your story or kind of what led you into not focusing on weight loss with clients. Mm -hmm. Because I know for me as a dietitian, my training was very weight-centric. When I worked in the Mm -hmm. hospital, it was very weight-centric. And I think it's helpful for listeners to kind of hear what happened that kind of changed Mm -hmm. our viewpoint on this. Yeah. And I think it's really important to keep that in mind, especially for a lot of us who 
um, went through their training before we had words like intuitive eating or mm-hmm. non-diet approaches or before it became more just common kind of ways of talking about food. Most of us were weight centric because that was the only option. And I know for me, you know, I went to school in the nineties. That's when just the like epidemic of the O word was really in its like early stages. And the way that I was talked, I was taught about weight and food was purely like, this is the knowledge you give it to your client and then they do it and then they get healthier. Mm -hmm. And uh, (laughs) like, that's all I was missing was the knowledge. And at the same time, when I was studying to become a dietitian, I didn't really relate to the dieting experience in the in that I was really connected to how fun food was and how it helped me connect with all these new people I was meeting in college and how much fun I had eating at the burrito buggy where I went to college. <laughs> there was like the the like first kind of like food truck <laughs> where I went to school it was the burrito buggy. It's so amazing. And it's still there. But anyway, so it was just an odd experience to even like talk about dieting with folks. And my first few years as a dietitian, I worked in a really big hospital. It was like over a thousand beds. And I ended up working in pediatrics, which was great for me because I got to like work with a lot of doctors and have a lot of say as a, mm-hmm. as a dietitian. There's this experience as a dietitian in pediatrics where you do end up having a little bit more power just because mm-hmm. of how important nutrition is for like growth and things like mm-hmm. that and their children. And so I got to intermingle more and learn more about disease. And I really got to see quickly how little I was like little change I was making by helping people to diet. I was helping kids lose weight, helping families lose weight. I say helping them lose weight. I really wasn't. Mm -hmm. I I basically came across a couple scenarios. As I was seeing kids and their families, they either would just keep gaining weight, their weight would stay the same, or they wouldn't come back. And then like maybe once a quarter, we'd have like one person who lost a few pounds and like, oh, yay. Mm -hmm. And that was like the confirmation that a lot of people just needed to keep going But after a few years, I was like, I'm not doing something right here. Like there's maybe I'm missing some kind of component because this is not working. And after, you know, 50, 100 people, like I kind of saw the variable was me, not Mm -hmm. the actual clients coming in trying to change their weight. And so that's when I decided to to pursue a master's degree in counseling. I thought if I learned like behavior change and how to establish rapport, I'd be a more effective and efficient dietitian. That was in my like position statement to get into the school. I was like, I want to be a more (laughs) effective and efficient dietitian with this training. And so when I left that program, after I finished it, I had just read intuitive eating and I started seeing clients. And then within six months of that, I started specializing in eating disorders. That was the first time I started actually like hearing people's experiences with eating disorders. And I was also the dietitian that helped people prepare for bariatric surgery. Mm. And the amount of like consistent, like stories that I was hearing from folks either with an eating disorder or preparing for a bariatric surgery was, it was like so similar how much shame people were having, Mm -hmm. experiencing how they felt like they had to control their eating. But then one group, we were like giving sympathy and helping them to move away from that behavior. And then this other group, we were like pushing and pushing and pushing further. Like they had to keep Mm. restricting. And 
it didn't sit well with me. <laughs> I did have a moment where like my, I got in trouble because I wasn't teaching a, a class appropriately that was supposed to be for this like big diet company that was basically funding our outpatient clinic. And I got called to the, the boss's office and I cried, but I told her, I was like, I can see now how harmful dieting is and mm-hmm. how we're treating people in higher weight bodies different than everybody else. And that just feels wrong. And luckily I was in a place to quit my job. And then I just was like, there's gotta be something else. So I reread intuitive eating. I started looking into things read by written by Deb Brigard, who's a hate psychologist out of California. And from there, it was just like this rabbit hole that I kept going through. And yeah, so that was in 2005 and I've been doing that ever since. And the thing that I appreciate about that experience for me is that like in the moment, I had a tremendous amount of privilege to be able to quit that job. There mm-hmm. are so many dietitians who experience that exact same thing, but they have to stay in that position because that provides their health insurance or they it's like how they're actually putting food on the table. So tons of compassion for anybody who's in that space because it's really hard. But I feel like really lucky that at that moment, I was able to move on and on yeah. and never te- teach a diet again. Yeah, that's such a hard situation when you're 100%. in a workplace and you need you need that income and those benefits and it's not aligned. Mm-hmm. I I had a similar such I don't think I've ever talked about this on the podcast, but Ooh, let's hear before it. well, when I left clinical and I was starting my practice, I did have two part-time jobs. I worked PRN at the hospital, which mm-hmm. I, I loved working in the hospital. I loved working in like the trauma unit and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, and then I worked part-time for a wellness company. And I feel like the wellness company is kind of, I see this a lot in the quote unquote wellness space of somebody who on the surface says like, yeah, dieting is bad. We don't we don't want to focus on weight. We want to focus on feeling better and all this stuff. But then when I actually got in there, it was like, oh, well, we this person, if they're working with you, they have to lose X amount of pounds per mm-hmm. month and things like that. And oh, wow. Yeah. They were like trying to... When I left, they said they wanted to bring in supplements and they wanted us to be recommending supplements. And like, there's definitely a time and place for that, especially mm-hmm. I think in the PCOS space, but it just felt really wrong. And Mm -hmm. I definitely like butted heads with the owner who was a physician. So, Mm. but I think everybody has that breaking point where you, you're observing your clients and when they're truly taking care of themselves and making choices Mm -hmm. from a place of self-care and not restriction, they may not be losing weight. And then you're like, okay, this isn't adding up. Like weight loss is not the right path here. Like yes. I can tell this person is doing well and right. Yeah. Cause I yeah, think the way hard. that we've been taught about nutrition as dietitians and then just how we've been all raised in this environment is like, it's the only way. And, mm-hmm. and what you and I both saw, we like just looked a little bit over in a different direction. We saw like, wait, there is another option. And then from there we see so many other options. And then also I, I have a feeling this happened to you all the time, but so many people would come in and be making changes with their behaviors and be feeling great and really optimistic, but then somehow accidentally got on a scale or like had to go to mm-hmm. the doctors and they saw either, it just wasn't the number they were hoping. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, doom and gloom. This is horrible. I'm failing. 
Yeah. I'm like, what is the variable that just changed? It's the awareness Mm -hmm. of your body size. Like what about all these other health markers? Like your A1C Mm -hmm. was going down. Your cycles were more regular, feeling so much more energy instead of drained and sluggish all the time. Those are Mm -hmm. like really important. And I mean, I think they're even more important, but you know. Right. Yeah. (laughs) How you're functioning from day to day. Yeah. Yeah. I, when I first started specializing in PCOS, I had that experience a lot when Mm -hmm. I was taking insurance or I was seeing people with a package and I really just kind of saw anyone who wanted to work with me. And like when somebody would have a weight loss goal, I would just straight up say, I'm not the best fit for you because here's my approach. Mm -hmm. And somebody would have another outcome that they would want to focus on like sleep or energy or lab values. But if what I saw in practice was when that person was very tapped in to at the end of the day, the deepest desire was weight loss. So all of those things could improve and they would be like, but wait a second, this didn't mm-hmm. work. This wasn't mm-hmm. effective. And that was really hard for me as a practitioner because I could see all of the ways that somebody's well-being had improved or like maybe somebody's period was regular and they mm-hmm. their goal was fertility. And I'm like, well, you, your period is regular now. Like, isn't yeah. that's part of the story? And I think it's it's really hard that diet culture like has this cast on us that mm-hmm. that makes us feel like we're not doing something right mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. weight loss doesn't come along with that. Yeah. And I would assume if people were getting these outcomes with us and then going to their doctor or other healthcare provider, they probably were being told it wasn't enough. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like that's great, but yeah, you haven't yeah. lost any weight. Yeah. yeah. Well, you mentioned that you started out specializing in eating disorders and that Mm -hmm. kind of opened up the world of PCOS Mm -hmm. for you. What are some things that you see in practice that increase the risk of eating disorders in your opinion? I see some of the physiology connected to PCOS, Mm -hmm. a part of it, but then also the primary way to treat it as like this perfect storm for an eating Mm -hmm. disorder. And, you know, for the physiology, of course, like the high insulin levels and experiences in one's body, feeling like just not really sure what's going on, feeling really tired all the time and not sleeping well at the same time, just having this kind of experience in their body. But then on the flip side, the type of treatment to push weight loss when, as we know, with people experiencing these high insulin levels, experiencing this like intense kind of craving for carbs and sugar, and feeling at times where like they have to eat it and mm-hmm. how that's such a normal part of how their body's telling them that they have high insulin levels, but at the same time, time trying to restrict them. So many folks would tell me that they would give in, kind of quote, give in to the craving mm-hmm. and would start this kind of like pendulum swinging of not being able to stop eating carbs and then feeling really ashamed of it mm-hmm. and restricting and getting the feedback from doctors like, yes, no. Okay. That just means you need to have less carbs and less sugar. You need to exercise more and basically punish themselves from listening to their body and Mm -hmm. how that just further, like it just like cements that pathway to go towards disordered eating and to disconnect from one's body and instead follow this like diet sheet, which 
for people who don't have PCOS and experience an eating disorder, it's very similar. You know, Mm -hmm. it's a very similar kind of like rigid black and white presentation. Like I have to do this. And instead of the other ways people without PCOS experience an eating disorder, which is very complicated too, it's like a fast track, you know, Mm -hmm. like or a fast pass at Disney, you know, people can go through the line really fast. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think people with PCOS have the same thing where they're prescribed this way of eating that is this fast pass to quickly develop an eating disorder. And there's certainly research on how people, the more that they wait cycle with PCOS, the more likely they're going to experience an eating disorder. I don't know about you, but for like most of the research that I read about PCOS and eating disorders is binge eating disorder or maybe mm-hmm. bulimia. But the most common eating disorder I've seen in my practice with PCOS is anorexia. It's not mm-hmm. binge eating and bulimia. And I think that's really important to note because you can binge and have anorexia. Mm-hmm. So it's not yeah. that, you know, you can have that kind of behavior. But because many folks with PCOS, not everyone, but many folks with PCOS have are in a higher weight body, I think that anorexia is just taken off the table as yeah. like something mm-hmm. to be concerned about. But most people with anorexia are in a higher rate body. So, and to appreciate every eating disorder, no matter which one you have, they do have a restrictive component to it. Mm-hmm. And because you are pushed to restrict with PCOS, you are at a much higher risk of experiencing these eating disorders, which, you know, take like 10 years on average to recover from. This is mm-hmm. not like, just like, doesn't happen very often kind of thing. And it's not very pervasive. It's more common than people think, totally not diagnosed enough and can take a decade to recover from. So Mm -hmm. it's a really big deal, you know? Yeah. I'm glad that you, you made the comment about anorexia versus binge eating disorder, because Mm -hmm. I do see the word binge used in a way Mm -hmm. that isn't exactly how we would clinically define binge eating. And so a lot of people do have experienced anorexia with like episodes maybe of binges Mm -hmm. or episodes Mm -hmm. of overeating. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. And also another important thing is that most people with eating disorders are in a larger body. And Mm -hmm. I think that when we think of the word anorexia, that's not what we, we think of. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's a really big disservice to those of you with PCOS that researchers are not looking into this and Mm -hmm. not even naming it as a possibility because of body size. Mm -hmm. You're really missing out on like information that you need to prevent this. Yeah. And to provide like the best holistic care for Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. folks with PCOS. This mm-hmm. conversation reminds me, have you seen the newest Dove commercial? And it's like, I think it's like a little girl and she has like disordered eating and they're they're giving flashback. Okay. When I saw that, I was like, it's great that we're bringing attention to this, but this is like your stereotypical know. person that yeah. has an eating disorder. And I'm like, it would have been great to show somebody at a higher weight or maybe mm-hmm. somebody that just wasn't your thin white Yes, female. Exactly. Yeah. And this kind of reminds me of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would say anybody who's listening, who is a clinician or like helps people with PCOS, make sure this is on your radar. Mm-hmm. And I, I haven't talked to anybody yet with PCOS who's like, yeah, my relationship with food's great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? It's not complicated at all. Like that's just, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's folks who exist like that, but even just how you were diagnosed, you know, either like not told anything 
or, you know, just given birth control and like come back when you're wanting to get pregnant, like hearing those things over and over again, how it really discredits you from, or how it prevents you from really understanding this condition and really just re like puts you in this box of like, well, the only thing that really matters is your ability to reproduce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it affects your metabolic system and your psychology, but yet, you know, this is the one symptom that we're going to yeah. focus on or care we're gonna about. Focus on, and the rest is just weight loss. Yeah. Just, yeah. 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 It's a really big disservice. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm even thinking too about when somebody's diagnosed, a lot of my clients are told like they cause their PCOS, their weight cause their PCOS, they're eating too many carbs, and that's why they have uh-huh. PCOS. So there's so much because <laughs> that hasn't changed in 20 years. Like that has been going on for so mm-hmm. long. I feel really lucky that I did work with a pediatric endocrinologist who explained to me like mm-hmm. how it worked. But yeah, like 20 years. That's the same thing that people have been learning is that they caused it. And then yeah, birth control is all we got. Really crappy. Yeah. And I don't even know where, I don't even know how that, I mean, I feel like we're working so hard and then mm-hmm. uh, I would love to see more payoff from the advocacy and everything, but. Well, and those guidelines that we were talking about mm-hmm. earlier, that's where it's going to chip away at it. Yeah. And I did see that all throughout of mentioning like this happens in all body sizes Mm -hmm. and things like that. So hopefully that will trickle down to our healthcare system. I hope so. Well, are there any, I think a lot of people listening may not really understand the thoughts and behaviors that we as clinicians would consider disordered or maybe meet the criteria for an eating disorder. So for anybody listening, are there any thoughts or behaviors that they should be aware of that should kind of put up a red flag of like, hey, maybe mm-hmm. this isn't the healthiest for me in terms of my relationship mm-hmm. with food? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of behaviors are normalized. So when I say some of them, I would imagine that a listener may be like, well, that's like what everyone does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But it also is not how I think our body is supposed to be relating to food. But I would say if you find yourself thinking about food most of the day, that's a really big red flag that something's going on. And Mm -hmm. it could be, again, because with PCOS, having high insulin levels, it may promote that experience. But then when you layer dieting on top of that or trying to eat less, it'll just intensify. So that's one of them. And then also feeling like you're worth is based on how well, and I, you know, would of course do bunny ears around well, (laughs) but how well you follow whatever prescribed plan or diet that you're doing right now. And then if it doesn't work, feeling a lot of shame. And again, that's probably a really normal kind of trajectory at this point, just because of how pervasive diet culture is, especially if you're in a larger body, but that is something that is considered like part of the disordered eating spectrum is getting your worth from how you perform with your eating. Another one I would say is part of eating disorder, but also if you're in a larger body is probably part of how you are just navigating your the own bias that you're getting in your life. But eating less in front of people, sometimes we'll call it like performative eating, you know, eating a salad when you're around people because it's just like being good in a mm-hmm. sense. Uh, and again, that is a part of like the eating disorder spectrum, but also trying to survive this Mm -hmm. oppressive system of weight stigma. 
so that's another one of them. And oh my gosh, like let's let's see, I, exercise, having to like burn off all your calories that you've eaten, or just feeling like you need to punish with exercise. That's probably the third big whammy there too. Mm-hmm. That again, we often see with PCOS. Yeah. What did I forget? I know there's other ones out there. Anything come to mind for you? I think another big one is feeling the need to completely cut out food groups. Yes. For, yes. I, which again, this is yeah. something that's literally prescribed mm-hmm. to to you with PCOS. So mm-hmm. I can see where a lot of these thoughts and behaviors come from. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah. 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 It's like the normal prescription. And that's why it happens so frequently for folks with PCOS to actually get any new disorders because like you're literally prescribed eating disorder behavior mm-hmm. to manage this condition. And, and we also know long-term that it just makes it worse. So yeah. Right. It's not even an effective tool long-term. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so many people kind of along the lines of this are told that they can't manage PCOS using a non-diet approach. And a lot of that centers around insulin resistance and the metabolic Mm -hmm. issues with PCOS. And we know that insulin resistance can affect appetite. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts on hearing like, oh, well, I can't practice from a non-diet approach because my hunger and fullness cues are off Mm -hmm. or I have insulin resistance. So I need to cut out carbs. What are your thoughts on that? I have a lot of thoughts. (laughs) And this is where like that conversation is what really pushed me to look for new ways to help people with PCOS because I was, again, already totally knee deep into I'm not going to help people diet. So we have to think of something else. And over the years, what I've noticed is you can do intuitive eating or whatever non-diet tool you're using. You can do this with PCOS. And I think even more so it's going to benefit you. And you may need to do things differently than your like friends or other people doing this work without PCOS. And that's okay. Like I know for me, when I first was working with people with PCOS, I really wanted to be like, oh, natural, you know, just food and then add supplements later. And I was like, well, maybe we actually can do both at the same time because mm-hmm. helping to supplement while someone is moving towards eating enough and healing the relationship with food can actually like expedite things here, make it happen a little bit faster and give you relief. And one thing, I know you just interviewed Kimmy Singh not too long mm-hmm. ago and Kimmy and I worked together when she was a grad student of mine and we we, we had this big whiteboard out one day And we drew the intuitive eating scale, which a lot of people know is the hunger fullness scale. Mm -hmm. And we're like, but it's different with PCOS. Like there's just this difference what we're seeing. And what we noticed, like, as we were talking about it is that like the cravings in itself, how they're presenting is really great, like information for you, like really Mm -hmm. great insight on how to navigate non-diet work and what your body is telling you. And we noticed like these really intense, all-consuming, constant carb cravings were basically this big flag of Mm -hmm. super high insulin levels Mm -hmm. where it needed to be all like all on deck helping to help lower insulin. And then as a person started like to repair their body from all this dieting and they were starting a couple of supplements and were eating more closely aligned to enough because that just takes time. 
those cravings started to be like not all the time. And we're like, mm-hmm. oh, that's really interesting. And then they became these kind of random kind of instances instead. And that in itself was also a great tool to be like, oh, did I forget my medication today? Oh my gosh, I forgot mm-hmm. my metformin. That's why I'm getting this craving. Let me go take it. I hope that makes sense. I actually have a free class if anybody's into into this conversation. And it's at a bit.ly, let's see, bit.ly slash PCOS carb cravings. <laughs> And so if you are like, I want to know more about this, the free class that I have on that, that's just on demand recorded. But yeah, like that, you can move away from dieting, whether it's intuitive eating or any other tool that you want to use. And if it looks different, it's just because you have this different kind of condition. And I would say the same for people with insulin resistance without PCOS too. Mm -hmm. Like they're just, there may need to be some other attention and having intuitive eating kind of this idea that it's just based on hunger and fullness also is a poor way of explaining it. Mm-hmm. You know, intuitive eating and the way that I as a clinician teach it, and I think the way Evelyn Elise, the authors are intending is that like it's a healing tool. Like it's really about prioritizing healing. And if promoting health is something you're wanting to do, also doing that. So mm-hmm. uh, keep that in mind as well. It's not just like eating when you're hungry, stopping with your full. That's in itself is too rigid. And I think eating in a way that is promoting that healing is always the most important, you know, mm-hmm. prioritizing your healing. You deserve that. It's the most like dignified human way to experience food. And in the long run, it also is sustainable and promotes health. So I'm all in. Yeah. I like to say that intuitive eating, yes, it's about listening to your body, but really it's about understanding your body. Yeah. Like, that's so great. Yeah. Understanding where your thoughts and feelings about yes. food come from. And that's right. a big part of healing. Right. And those cravings are a part of understanding your body instead mm-hmm. of like, oh, I have to ignore them or trick them, or I need to be ashamed of them, especially if I eat in response to them. No, it's like, this is a piece of you understanding your body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't know if you see this in practice, but I definitely do that when someone is given the space to explore how their body is feeling and really work to try to understand it, people really have great insight into yes. their body and how they're feeling. It's just that I feel like everyone with PCOS is just being told like, oh, well, you can't trust yourself. Like you were mm-hmm. talking about the disassociation or mm-hmm. your hunger and fullness hormones are off kilter because of insulin resistance. So you can't. That you cause. That, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's not a body. tool. <laughs> right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's so much noise in diet culture. And I often think about like I love visiting Manhattan, but when I go there, you don't see as many stars because there's just so many lights and everything. Mm-hmm. And I, I picture diet culture like that. Like, and when you go away from the city, probably where you and I live, you know, you can see more stars, but even mm-hmm. if you go more rural, you can see them all and they're always there. But like with diet culture, it's just, there's so much like smog or whatever covering them up. And your relationship with your body is the same way. If you can find a way to like turn the dial down on diet culture noise, however you experience them, you'll be able to like, oh yeah, like I can understand how my body is working. And like, there's no diet sheet out there that's going to be able to connect you to that. Like you're the only one that can do Mm -hmm. that. And using a a non-diet approach, like intuitive eating is like 
that's a way to do it, like to help you get gain the skills to turn down all that noise to be able to like understand your body. I love that analogy. Thanks. Yeah. And I, I do think it's, that's exactly what it is. Noise all mm-hmm. around us. Yes. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, thank you so much for sharing that. I feel like that will be really helpful to the listeners okay. to close out our, our interview today, which I've really enjoyed. I wanted to ask you or talk a little bit about PCOS Advocacy Day because we had the privilege of being on the North Carolina team together. And I want listeners to know like we're out there trying Mm -hmm. to do what we can to make change in the PCOS space. So on Advocacy Day, which for anybody listening, I have an entire, I have two different episodes about PCOS oh, advocacy, one with William from PCOS Challenge, and then one with a recap of Advocacy Day this year. So I love your recaps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was your favorite part about Advocacy Day? And did anything surprise you? Oh my gosh, so many things surprised me. My favorite part was it, there was something really badass about actually talking to people in the government. And, mm-hmm. and and a lot of times it's just the staffers, but like still having that kind of like real time connection is so amazing. Mm-hmm. And hearing people's stories, you know, you and I have been talking to a lot of people with PCOS in our work, but then to, to talk to more people who we've never talked to before, who are also like our neighbors and our community mm-hmm. also experiencing it and hearing the same themes come up is really powerful. But what surprised me was I, I mean, I don't know if a listener knows me at all, they probably have like heard my podcast or me speak before. And like, I do a lot of those things, but I get really nervous mm-hmm. talking to legislators. And it seems, to, it's just so intimidating to me to think about, but PCS yeah. challenge makes it so easy to do it. Like they prep you so well. And of course, when you were our leader, you prepped us too. I felt so prepared. <laughs> Sam was a great team leader, the North Carolina, or you like North and South Carolina leader, probably at they, one point. <laughs> they've had to kind of make regional leaders. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. did a great job. Yeah. But that, like you have like your talking points ready going into it and it's so smooth. And that really surprised me. Like, it just made me really excited about the opportunity to do this every single year. Like now it's a for sure, like mm-hmm. the, what is it? Like the first Thursday in March or something mm-hmm. every year. And so I always want to do it moving forward. And I hope everybody else, if they have the bandwidth, and even if you feel a little intimidated like me, just know you will be prepped so well. Mm-hmm. And it's on Zoom too. So you can have all your note cards all around and no one Yeah, can. you can just like <laughs> literally have it up on your computer screen. Yeah, that's what I did. <laughs> yeah, because for, for anybody listening, if you haven't listened to the other advocacy episodes on Advocacy Day, PCOS Challenge, which is a nonprofit organization, they work really hard to improve funding and legislation for PCOS. They have organized asks for us. So they'll... You know, if there is a piece of legislation or they're working on a bill or one of the big things this year was they wanted support to have a drug development meeting. There are different ways that you can go about doing that. So they wanted like a patient centered one. Like we have these organized asks. So when you're going in there and talking to people, um, the staffers, 
the part that you kind of come up with on your own is just sharing a little bit about your experience with PCOS and how it's affected you. And so mm-hmm. that is the goal with being a team leader is that everything runs smooth and people on your team are not stressed out about the asks or mm-hmm. the nervousness with talking to a legislator. Mm-hmm. And you're just there to kind of share your experience, which is the most powerful part. Well, that's where change happens, like mm-hmm. especially like the medication option, like there are no FDA approved medications for PCOS. Mm-hmm. So why not? <laughs> right, exactly. It's really, really not okay for as many people who have it and how long we've known about it. There are zero. And this is how we actually can make change. And I know I learned this from you and like hearing over the last two advocacy days, like these folks who are making decisions in the government, they really benefit from hearing people's lived experience more than mm-hmm. anything. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't have PCOS. So like I could talk a little bit about it, but it really was shining a light on folks' lived experience. And that's what makes the change. Mm-hmm. So anybody with PCOS, if you can do it, do it. It'll benefit yeah. so many people and yourself. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad that you enjoyed it and that that yeah. was kind of your takeaway from it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Julie, for coming on and chatting with me today. Tell everyone how they can find you online because I know your your Instagram <laughs> got hacked. How can people connect with you? Yes, it got hacked in October. So well, you can always go to my website, julieduffydillon.com. And then I have a podcast since you're a podcast listener. It's called Find Your Food Voice. And especially if you have a complicated relationship with food, it's for you. And I'm on TikTok. I don't know, me and all the other like Gen Z folks I'm on TikTok. It's Food Voice RD. And it's super fun there. I don't know. So come hang out. <laughs> oh, I need to check out your TikTok. I mostly just watch TikTok for like home renovation stuff. <laughs> yes. Yes. I have a, because one of my kids is in a musical theater, I'm on musical theater, TikTok, and, and then like lots of dog videos. One other thing I want to just let you know too, I don't know when you're releasing this, but and we don't know when we're releasing it either. But I mentioned Kimmy Singh. She's a dietitian out of Manhattan, lives with PCOS, sees people with PCOS, but we did a podcast together when she was a grad student. Actually, she was finishing grad school and about ready to start her internship. When we did it, it was called PCOS and Food Peace Podcast. Well, we are going to do a round two. This time it's called PCOS Diaries. Oh, wow. And I know. And it's really just going to, it's going to be less clinical and more people like sharing their experiences, like living life, experiencing joy and all those things while also living with PCOS. So less on like how shitty the symptoms are or, you know, really this is how folks are living their life with PCOS. And we're not sure when it'll be out yet. We're just like going to do it organically until it's ready, but I'm really excited about it. So look for that. Oh, that sounds so amazing. And I love that you're putting an emphasis on living your life. I feel like Mm -hmm. so much of the PCOS space feels like so heavy when PCOS doesn't have to hold you back. Yeah. I think that heaviness comes a lot because people are just not, they don't understand it. They're not told mm-hmm. a lot about it. And so finding out the truth is really, really hard. But then with truth, there's some power. And yeah. these are going to be folks who are talking about all of that. So stay tuned. <laughs> oh, I love that. Well, keep me updated. I can't I wait to, I to listen. All right. all right. Well, thanks so much, Julie. I hope you have a great day. Thank you. Thanks for having me on your show. Thanks for listening to the Nourished with PCOS podcast. Be sure to hit subscribe so you can catch new episodes. 
I'd also be so grateful if you left a review and rating for the pod as well. See you next Wednesday.